Hey, it's Mark Wallstrom, and welcome to another edition of Speaking of Justice podcast. I'm your host, and uh, we have got another great show for you this week. And uh, I really appreciate every, all the great feedback we've been getting. You know, we're, it's our fourth show in this season. Uh, really pleased with what we're hearing as far as uh, people's reactions, suggested shows. So uh, if this is your first time listening, go to our Facebook page at Speaking of Justice Podcast or just go to speakingofjusticepodcast.com. You'll find us there. Well, look, we've got a great uh, guest today. I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, on the uh, preview other than to tell you today's topic is going to be about asylum law. Now, this is a really hot item right now. You know, I mean, you can't you can't turn on the TV, you can't go on the internet without seeing something going on about asylum law, immigration, our borders, uh, all of the debate in our society over this. And there's a lot of confusion, a lot of misinformation. So we are going to have a guest today, uh, Attorney Dree uh, Colopy, and she's with the firm uh, Benach and uh, Colopy, and they're in Washington, D.C. And she has just authored the eighth edition of AILAs, which is the association, uh, American Immigration Lawyer Association, uh, the eighth edition of the Asylum Primer, a practical guide to U.S. asylum law and procedure. Uh, this book is huge. <laughs> I mean, it's like the collected works of Shakespeare. It's 1,600 pages. Uh, how this woman uh, is able to practice law and produce what is really just an amazing resource. And if you are uh, interested in this topic, if you are in the immigration asylum uh, area and you're practicing in that area, this book is an absolute must-have. It is up to date. And I'm delighted to have her as a guest today uh, to talk about the book, but also to talk about issues related to asylum and immigration and, uh, you know, really have an expert on here to talk about this. Uh, Nadri has, uh, she's, you know, she's an experienced advocate. She's not just an author. Uh, she's devoted her practice to defending and representing individuals in removal proceedings, asylum matters, federal court litigation, VAWA and U visa petitions, uh, waivers of inadmissibility, uh, family and employment-based visa petitions. I mean, it really top to bottom, she does it. And she's, uh, you know, as you'll see in our conversation, she's extremely passionate. She's dedicated to her work. And, uh, and actually, in 2014, Drew was awarded uh, one of the American Immigration Lawyers' Highest Honors, which was the Joseph Minsky Young Lawyer Award for outstanding contributions made in the field of immigration and nationality law. So she's a frequent lecturer, obviously a writer, and, uh, you know, she is going to be a great guest. So not going to spend any more time on the warm-up. Uh, we will have, obviously, as we always do, links to the book, links to our website, ways for you to find her. But uh, uh, just uh, take a little minute here with the music break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to have Dree uh, Colopy on the phone with us, and we will be uh, we will be ready to go. So sit tight. Be right back. Okay, well, we're back, and uh, I have on the phone with us uh, Attorney Dree Colopy. Uh, Dree, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. And yourself? I'm doing great. Well, I've given you, uh, you know, uh, a, a big uh, warm up before I got you on the phone here, 
And what I'd like to do is I've talked a little bit about the firm, but uh, I'd really like you to kind of uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, your firm, how you decided to specialize in this particular area of practice, and then also what the firm's primary focus is and what kind of clients you're typically working with. Sure. So I have been practicing immigration law for about 12 years now and am currently a partner with Benach Colopy in Washington, D.C., and our firm is a boutique full-service immigration firm full of basically radically and unabashedly pro-immigrant advocates. Mm-hmm. And we are basically, our dedication to our work really stems from the deep respect that we have for immigrants and our fundamental belief in fighting for due process of law for immigrants. And I have been doing this work mostly because growing up in Iowa, I observed the contributions that immigrants made to family farms and agriculture and developed a respect for how immigrants worked to try to support their families and give their children a better life. Um, I then went on to study Spanish and started paying really close attention to developments in U.S. immigration policy, which made me want to go to law school and um, observing kind of the glaring injustices towards immigrants made me want to use my law degree to fight for immigrant rights. And uh, I had the opportunity to represent a Pakistani asylum seeker in immigration court under a supervising attorney when I was in law school. And I knew right then and there that that's what I wanted to do with my career, um, giving a voice to the most vulnerable population. Well, and the the thing that's fascinating, you know, really about immigration law and all of this is that um, while it is a hot political issue and a topic the number of people who have actually gone into an immigration hearing and or seen the process is minuscule. Uh, So what I'm really hoping that we can do is, as we go through this today, is begin to shed light on what is actually going on. What are the issues? What are people's rights in this area? And, Mm -hmm. and, And where are those rights being abused? And how can we better serve people who are seeking asylum. And, and of course, talking about your book, you know, I, I've referred to it as a Shakespearean-sized 1,600-page uh, opus. And I had no <laughs> idea how you, in your practice, had time to do this because it is really impressive. And uh, as we get into this and we talk about the book a little bit uh, with people, uh, uh, we're going to have links to the book as a resource. But tell us a little bit about the book and, you know, uh, how do you juggle this writing and active law practice family and uh, with all that is going on in immigration and asylum right now? I mean, how do you keep up on all this? Sure. Well, it, it's certainly a challenge to keep up on everything, given the constant deluge of information and policy changes coming from the current administration, especially uh, as they relate to asylum seekers in the United States. So that was certainly a challenge uh, trying to write a book while basically updating it almost every day at the same time. Um, It's the book is a a comprehensive summary of U S asylum law and procedure. And it's also a manual of strategies and practical guidance for advocates who are representing asylum seekers. Uh, 
how did I juggle everything? <laughs> it's, yeah. it, again, it was a challenge. Um, I, I have a two year old, almost two year old and, and certainly wouldn't have been able to produce the book without the love and partnership of my husband, Justin, yeah. and also the support of my law partner, uh, Ava Benach and all of our staff at Benach Colopy. But basically there were a lot of sleepless nights and, and, uh, uh, working outside of normal, normal work hours. Well, it's, it's clearly a, a, a labor of love and, and I think indicative of your passion on this issue to provide a resource for uh, attorneys, uh, you know, who mm-hmm. maybe don't do a lot of asylum work or have an asylum case or are, you know, just need to be educated. Uh, you know, I mean, I went through uh, quite a bit of it and, you know, it is, it is comprehensive and it is, it's really pretty awesome. So, I mean, we're going to make sure uh, people have resource to it, but who, who is the book primarily written for and, and what are kind of the practical elements lawyers practicing in this area, not, not just asylum, but, you know, immigration law and, or, you know, who run into an immigration case, uh, you know, what, what can they draw from this book? Sure. And that, that really is what kept me going despite all the challenges in, in, in the writing process was thinking about, you know, right now in the world, we're witnessing highest levels of displacement in history. Um, the United Nations, States that nearly one person is forcibly displaced every two seconds as a result of conflict or persecution. Yeah. Yet in the United States, uh, we are seeing the erection of barriers to even accessing the asylum system that have never existed before. And most asylum seekers do not have counsel. Um, there's no provided government provided counsel for for immigrants and so there really is a gap in access to justice for asylum seekers and so really you know this book is meant to try to help bridge that gap because there are not enough asylum lawyers and people who specialize in immigration law to meet the need and so it's my hope that this book not only helps experienced seasoned asylum lawyers, but it also gives non-immigration attorneys the tools that they need to take on a pro bono asylum case mm. and do a competent job. Yeah. And that's, it, it, that's really important because I think, you know, our, our audience is kind of 50, 50 between uh, lawyers and I would refer to as interested citizens and non-lawyers, journalists, academics. So, you know, uh, and, and it, you know, the magnitude of the problem dwarfs the resources available, you know, I guess is probably the best way to describe it as far as legal resources and attorneys who can practice in this area. Uh, many of these people, I'm, you know, come here with little or no financial resources and, you know, big problems. And so, you know, the, the ability to have a primer or a step-by-step guide like this that people can access and, you know, to some degree, muddle their way through with better information and process until they find that particular lawyer or have the ability to do that, I think is is really invaluable. Now, now one of the things, uh, next question, you know, we kind of live in interesting times when it comes to asylum and immigration law, uh, obviously, as we've stated. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you just gave the statistics and, you know, uh, every day, every week, there seems to be something else coming out 
on a policy basis, uh, administrative law, Supreme Court, appellate court. I mean, it's it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And just last That's week, right. just last week, we saw the administration announce they're dropping the annual limit on asylum claims to eighteen thousand. Now, obviously, this makes a valid documented claim vital. So, if you hope under current conditions to obtain asylum, so what are the key elements an asylum seeker that needs to know under current client? And do do I have that? Am I assuming correctly on this information on the eighteen thousand? So there is actually a distinction between the refugee resettlement program, which has an annual limit or cap on the number, and the asylum system, which has no limit. Explain the difference on that for me. Sure. In, In U.S. law, the search for protection from persecution can occur in two different fora. So one outside U.S. territory And the second is for people who are inside U.S. territory or seeking protection at U.S. borders. And the people who are outside U.S. territory uh, are are resettled in the U.S. through the Refugee Resettlement Program. Uh, They are identified first by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees or a designated non-governmental organization, and they're specifically referred to the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, where they can then present their requests for for protection, and they're, you know, subject to extensive background checks and security clearance procedures. And that's what the 18,000 number that you reference okay, is. Right. The, the president of the United States designates the number of refugees that can be admitted to the U.S. annually. Right. Um, and versus the asylum system, which is for people within the United States or at U.S. borders who seek protection, um, and if they meet the extensive legal requirements in that process, they can be granted asylum in the United States, and there is no cap on that number. So that would be more the people, let's say, who are coming through, uh, you know, border facilities in El Paso or Nogales who are presenting and, you know, requesting asylum. So that's that's one thing, but the the 18,000 cap, a completely different program uh, and handled differently, correct? That's correct. Okay. And that number is the lowest cap that the United States has ever had yeah. in its history. Yeah. Okay. Well, next, next point then, a general question on the state of immigration <laughs> law and asylum in general. And, you know, this is easily, you know, I've been around a long time older than you. It's the most contentious time I remember in my memory regarding immigration, uh, both, you know, legal, illegal, whatever people want to define it. Uh, Here's a question. Uh, essentially, all border are all border crossers and those who go through points of entry and who request asylum and and they're put through a process to determine validity. Uh, and there's a huge gap. I mean, people, you know, people kind of simplify this. i'm I'm guilty of it. Everyone's guilty of it. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't really know what that process is like. People aren't on the border. I live on a border state, and i'm I think I'm more familiar than some people in other parts of the country. But, uh, explain that process a little bit. Tell us a little bit more about how that works and you know what the what's happening daily on the border and how it impacts mm-hmm. potential for someone to obtain asylum. Sure. So the United States in the Immigration and Nationality Act specifically 
recognizes the right to seek asylum. Mm -hmm. It specifically in the text of the law says that any person who is physically present or who arrives in the United States, whether or not at a designated port of arrival and irrespective of their status may apply for asylum. And under the U.S. Constitution, the Due Process Clause, it requires that if there's a right established in a law, that there be a procedure for accessing that right. And previously, the procedure, the way it was envisioned, and of course, there there have always been problems with the process at the border, but previously, people would approach a port of entry or be apprehended following crossing the border and have basically an opportunity to talk to an officer and request um, the opportunity to ask for asylum or even just expressing a fear saying, I cannot return. I will be harmed in my home country. Mm -hmm. And the second any fear was expressed, that person is supposed to be referred to a U.S. asylum officer for a screening interview that's called a credible fear interview. Okay. And that interview is supposed to be exactly what I said, a screening. They don't have to demonstrate eligibility for asylum at that point, but they do need to demonstrate that they have a potentially valid asylum claim. If they demonstrate that, um, they then are placed in deportation or removal proceedings where they then have a right to present their asylum application in front of a U.S. immigration judge in defense of being deported. So they're not rubber stamped into the United States. They're not granted anything. They just simply are put in proceedings and have a right to present their full application. Um, That is no longer the process. Okay. Uh, So so, so what do we have today? (laughs) So, yeah. So right now, um, what we are seeing is fundamental uh, procedural changes to that process that have essentially erected incredible barriers to the U.S. asylum system. So just chronologically how it is happening right now, and, and this is based on facts based on people who have observed these things. Mm-hmm. Um, asylum seekers are approaching a port of entry where they are met by a border patrol officer. Uh, the border patrol officers have been doing several things. One, saying things like, oh, asylum doesn't exist anymore in this country. Or that's not grounds for basically putting themselves in the shoes of the asylum officer saying, well, that doesn't count for asylum. So you you have to go away, Um, turning people away, essentially. The other thing that's happening is the officers are using what's been referred to as metering, basically establishing an artificial limit on the number of people who can ask to start the asylum process each day. They're then added to a list that's run by Mexican government officials, and they're waiting three to six months on average to even have the opportunity to approach the officers at the port of entry to ask to start the asylum process. Once they've waited that long, if they're ever called off the list, the waiting list, 
then they're being subject to the administration's remain in Mexico problem, which a uh, program which has been uh, discussed in the media a lot recently. So, um, so and I can elaborate on that program. If yeah, that's I would like to, but look, one question before that, uh, and, and please come back to that. So, the the metering, if you will, or the filtering, mm-hmm. or this process is uh, is that a discretionary? Uh, tool that people at the Border Patrol have, or is this in violation of statute or standard procedure leading up to it? I mean, where, where, where do they come up mm-hmm. with, uh, where have they created this authority, I would say, uh, mm-hmm. to do this metering, which is keeping people, as you said, you know, six weeks, three months, mm-hmm. you know, waiting on these lists? How, how, uh, how, how did that change, and what was the, the thought process or the law or the regulation or whatever behind that? Sure. So there is no law or regulation establishing that or establishing authority for that. Uh, To the contrary, as I mentioned, the specific language of of the statute says that anyone who enters has a right to apply for asylum. So they're essentially interfering with that. Yeah. With the statute, they're violating the statute by preventing people from accessing that right. Um, and. It, it's something that has been ha- increasing over the last couple of years, um, but especially under the current administration, it's um, you know there there have been well documented uh, studies of Border Patrol and their kind of abuse of power and violations of of their statutory and regula- regulatory obligations, and that's just kind of basically the gloves have been taken off and, and already rogue agency yeah well let's let's uh, let's switch over to the the question we were going to answer before which is this remain in mexico policy because it sounds like what we're talking about on this metering and this process is Mm -hmm. also being empowered by or legitimate legitimized or you know using this remain in mexico program explain a little bit Mm -hmm. about that and how it impacts asylum uh, seekers Sure. Um, so the administration refers to it as the migrant protection protocols, which is perhaps the greatest misnomer of all, given that it, <laughs> in in my view, does the exact opposite of protecting people. Okay. Uh, so what happens is, you know, once they get called off the metering list, um, people can finally approach the officer who then issues them a notice to appear in immigration court and sends them back to Mexico to await their hearing date. And typically that wait time on average has been about three to five months for their first hearing. So while they're waiting in Mexico, they have nowhere to go. They have no resources. The shelters are overflowing and there are squalid conditions. There are not, there's not enough space for people. And so for example, a, a few months ago, uh, less than people reported that less than 10% of people who were subject to remain in Mexico were in shelters. So they were basically living in makeshift camps and tents near the border, which are notoriously dangerous places. Right. Um, these people are sitting ducks for cartels and corrupt Mexican law enforcement. Mm-hmm. They've been extorted beaten, raped, kidnapped, and even murdered. And those there's specific cases of each of those that have been documented by organizations. Yeah. Um, 
they're starving and yet at the same time they are expected to show back up at the port of entry on the date and time of their hearing and then complete an application for asylum in in the English language, support it with corroborating evidence, paginate, copy, and compile it according to the court's instructions, all while living on the streets in terribly dangerous conditions and essentially trying to survive. Um, And so, you know, all the while not having any access to attorneys who could help them with that process. Right. So in some, it's, it's, a, it's a program that's made it nearly impossible to seek asylum at a port of entry now. Yeah. Uh, next question. Uh, you know, on my show, I try to, you know, I try to be nonpartisan on topics. <laughs> uh, but this topic is highly charged. It's a polarizing topic uh, for just about everybody. And, you know, you're, you're in the thick of it every day. Uh, you're advocating for people. You're explaining. You've got this primer out. You're you know, working on cases. Uh, how hard is it for you as a lawyer uh, to maintain your professional objectivity and work within the law in this format, you know, while dealing with these conflicts and frustrations and changing rules and let's say regulations or procedures that are being ignored or, you know, run over or altered? Mm-hmm. Uh, how frustrating is it for you to be working in this area right now? It's incredibly frustrating. Uh, To me, this isn't a topic that should be political or polarizing. To me, it's about human rights and it's about moral absolutes. And these people are human and they're fleeing horrific violence and they're trying to save their children's lives. And I think that anyone in the United States would do the exact same thing to save their children. And you know, I want to stress, I am not at all an advocate for open borders and I'm not advocating for everyone's application to be approved. But what I am advocating for is due process of law. Absolutely. And the law says that these people have a right to seek asylum and our constitution requires meaningful access to that right. And so for me, you know, we have a legal obligation to, at a minimum, let the, let these people present their applications in a meaningful way. And that is not happening. And it's incredibly frustrating to me that, um, that you know, people don't, don't understand that and, and don't recognize that the importance of due process and not just for immigrants, but for, for everyone in America. Absolutely. Um, you know, due process is one of our fundamental founding principles and to have it ignored for anyone is, is something that uh, I think contributes to our ongoing identity crisis in this country. That's a great way to put it. And, and, you know, uh, you know, the kind of the, the philosophy of this show is, you know, I'm a, a, you know, I'm a, a passionate advocate of the, U.S. judicial system and what has been created and what has sustained us. And it's at this most fundamental level, whether it's administrative law or or particular areas of law, where people don't, they tend to to, uh, objectify people or remove themselves emotionally from a situation and say, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's just down there on the border. That's, you know, that's in El Paso and we don't need to worry about that. But access to the courts, the right to representation, 
the right to due process, the right to a swift adjudication of your, you know, your claim or your situation. Uh, these are things that are just absolutely fundamental uh, to people at the human level, and it's the it's the foundation of our uh, our, our our society. And when you begin to see that being uh, toyed with or obstructed or rigged, uh, that's where we really kind of get this this tremendous cleaving in our society. And I, I think you know the fact that there are advocates like yourself. Uh, like you said, you know, this is about justice. This is about due process. This is about doing what Americans have always done, and working in that as a lawyer. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, I, it's it's great that you're doing it, and uh, it kind of goes back to kind of my final thoughts on the book. Is that, you know, what's the most important thing that you feel lawyers and citizens need to know on this topic, but are generally uninformed or misinformed that they could correct by the book or by getting more educated on this and, mm -hmm. and you know, wh where do they go for legal resources and how do they find representation, Dre? Sure. So uh, the book addresses a lot of these policy changes and breaks them down and explains, you know, what, what was the procedure before? What is it now? Yeah. Um, how, you know, how can we operate in this new world? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the book will certainly help, uh, attorneys understand that as well as just the general public if they you know have an interest in um, understanding these changes to the U.S. asylum system better I think the book certainly speaks to that um, and I also think that you know it's it's a resource that hopefully will help non-immigration attorneys join in this fight for justice yes. and um, feel confident that they can um, really make a difference in the lives of these vulnerable people who really need zealous advocate, uh, advocates in this in this environment. Well, Dree, uh, again, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on. Uh, we're going to uh, push the book, make sure people have access to it, make sure they can know how to find you and uh, learn more about you and your firm and what's going on. And I just want to tell you, you know, as we, I don't think we're going to lack for uh, subjects to discuss in this area over the next mm -hmm. year. And as cases and situations come up, I, I'd love to have you back on as a guest and uh, comment on those and continue to inform our audience as we go along. Sure, I appreciate that opportunity. And thank you so much for having me on today. Great. Thank you so much. Well, that was a great interview. At least I thought so, but then I'm biased. You know, I think uh, Dree has done a tremendous job uh, with this book. Uh, I'm going to keep referencing it. We're going to make sure we have links to it, the opportunity where to find it. Also, where you can find out more information on her and her firm, uh, you know, what they do, uh, the type of practice they have. And I think she made a great point is that, you know, this book provides a roadmap and a resource, an important resource for lawyers who maybe are not in the immigration and asylum area. Uh, if you run into that pro bono case, you run into that case that walks into your office or you see some injustice, you've got the ability to get the ball rolling. And then you obviously can access, you know, experts who can help you. Uh, but the, the system is being overwhelmed uh, and by the lack of representation. 
And uh, regardless of where people stand on immigration, uh, whether they're you know to the left, to the right, or in the middle, uh, we have a responsibility in the United States to have a functioning immigration and asylum system. And that requires uh, representation of the people who are going through it, or at the very least, education and resources for people who are going through that process so that they know what their rights are, they know what the law states. You know, all we want to do is have people follow the law. And what the law states, what the law allows, is what people should be allowed to have. And this is about getting the resources and the things that they need to do that. And this book is one of them. So uh, I want to thank uh, Dree. We've got another uh, great series of guests coming up next week. And uh, again, as always, if you have uh, show ideas, if you have people uh, that you think we should be talking to, topics you want covered, go to our Facebook page uh, or contact me directly. Uh, the show is sponsored by Wallstrom & Associates. Uh, it's a real labor of love where we're doing this because we believe in access to justice. We believe in the right to trial by jury, and we believe that people should have uh, competent legal advice and access to uh, resources to make sure that they're protected and that their rights are not infringed. So on that, we'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>